I think most of you know about Kathleen Ray. Uh, we have poets and we have scholars, but it's very rare that you get a poet and a scholar together. So you have on one side, you have vision, imagination, on the other side, precision, facts. And to bring these together is very rare. We also have in Kathleen someone who's brought together this Temnos Academy, which is part of what this is about. A group of people who are interested in the perennial philosophy in its various forms, who talk each in their own way from their own subject, and Kathleen really has been a pivot of that. So she's not just a poet and a scholar, but she also is an extremely good organizer. I don't know many poets or scholars who have that. <laughs> <laughs> I first saw Kathleen's photograph, I think it was in the Sunday Times, taken by a woman photographer called James Brother. And I thought, that's a very familiar face. Very familiar face. I must have been about 25, a long time ago. And during the course of one's education, one comes across other pictures, like a picture of William Blake. And here is Kathleen, who isn't just an expert on William Blake, she has that poet's insight, that poet's sensitivity into the processes that Blake worked with. And sometimes when I've been sitting having tea with her in her Chelsea flat, which is like going back a hundred years, I look at her face and I say, how do I know this is not Blake? If you look at this face, <laughs> maybe she's writing upon herself. And tonight she's going to talk about Blake, I suspect from the inside, not the outside. So. Thank you, Warren. <laughs> well, perhaps it's true that we've met many times and in many places, and uh, who knows who we've been in the past. I hate to think of it. It may have been quite dreadful. It hasn't been so bad this time. Uh, well, this paper, I was originally asked to give a paper to the students at the Aligarh uh, Muslim University in India and Dr. Ansari who is a very distinguished Blake scholar and I've corresponded with him for many years said keep it simple. So I hope I've kept it simple and it's um, It's a bit quiet. Can you hear it? it back? Very well. Is that better? Can you hear it at the back? Can you hear it at the back? No. 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 Uh, it, it's... Have I to sit between the two? <laughs> I don't know. Can you hear now? Yes. That's better. Well, I... If you can't hear if my voice falls, please somebody let me know. Well, William Blake, prophetic voice of England. For more than half my long life, my studies have been concerned with William Blake. If I were an academic, I would say that Blake has been my subject. But being myself a poet, it is more true to say that Blake has been my master. 
in the oriental sense of that word, and I hope I have served him well, thrown a degree of light to my contemporaries upon his profound thought and the complex and obscure mythological organism of his entire work, both his writings and his paintings and engravings, which together form an indivisible whole. Be that as it may, I must begin what I have to say in the traditional oriental manner of acknowledging my debt of gratitude to the teacher to whom I owe more than to any other among the great names of the Western tradition, Plato and Plotinus in my own country, Shakespeare's inexhaustible riches, Milton whom Blake himself so revered, Shelley who alone of Blake's contemporaries drew upon many of the same sources within the one unanimous and universal tradition of wisdom, and W.B. Yeats, Blake's first editor and greatest disciple. Indeed, I'm not alone in my generation or the younger generations that follow in holding Blake's prophetic writings, for so he describes them, among the sacred books from which I have learned what those in my time and place have most needed to know. Indeed, the very phrase, the new age, now current in the Western, westernized world, is surely taken from Blake's introduction to his poem, Milton, in which he calls to the young men of the new age to rouse up and wake to a new vision stirring in the world. Blake was himself born in 1757, in which year the Swedish visionary Swedenborg declared that a new church had come into being, the Church of the New Jerusalem. Blake was, both at the beginning and at the end of his life, deeply influenced by Swedenborg and saw himself as the voice of that new age which had begun in the year of his birth. There are works of transforming power whose influence operates, it may be, on whole civilizations like the Jewish Bible, the Koran, the Christian Gospels. And within these larger contexts, what one must call minor prophets. Blake called his writings and poems prophetic books. He is the sole English poet to have made such a claim, nor could such a claim be made for any other English poet. He remains the one English religious prophet. What is more, it is only in this century that the transforming power of his writings has manifested itself and continues to do so among a younger generation who would in general accept the values of the so-called new age. This embraces the great numbers looking not for progress and development according to the received values of our scientific materialist civilization, but for a reversal of the premises of that civilization, of the very grounds and assumptions on which it is established. René Guénon, the French metaphysician, who at the beginning of this century made his radical challenge to the very premises of Western civilization, called our age the reign of quantity. Blake had made the same radical challenge a century before, not as a theorist, but from the very heart of life itself. 
No other poet, neither Wordsworth, nor Coleridge, nor Byron had done so. Shelley alone, who likewise challenged current values in the name of poetic truth, may indeed have known something of Blake's writings through his marriage to Mary Godwin, daughter of Mary Wollstonecraft, whom Blake had known and two of whose books he had illustrated. During his lifetime, Blake's prophetic books remained unpublished and existed only in the beautiful illuminated copies he made by a method of printing he himself invented, selling copies to a few friends. It was only a century later that their power began to operate on a generation themselves beginning to call in question the premises of the mighty structure of a materialist civilization which has yielded such evident benefits in the sphere of technology. Blake lived and died in poverty although he was known and honoured among his fellow artists and by a group of young disciples, including Samuel Palmer and Calvert and others, who called themselves the Shoreham Ancients, affirming their adherence to ancient and traditional sacred values as against the moderns, who then as now were prepared to discard the wisdom of ages and put their trust in the new scientific scientific experimental method. Blake's rich and complex works can be studied from many standpoints in the context of the revolutionary political events of his age, in the light of modern psychology, especially that of C.G. Jung, which casts much light upon Blake's mythology of the inner worlds, the fourfold structure of the human soul, whose energies he personified as his four zoas, living creatures of sense perception, feeling, reason, and vision, and his spiritual fourfold London, the city of Golganusa, whose structure is also fourfold. I have myself made studies in some of Blake's most important sources, Plotinus and other of the Neoplatonic writings translated by his contemporary Thomas Taylor the Platonist. Indeed, Blake can be seen in a certain sense as influenced by the Greek revival at the end of the 18th century. Jakob Burma, the great German Protestant mystic, Swedenborg, Paracelsus, Blake himself names as his sources. But I shall attempt only to present the main outline of what I believe to be the essence, the underlying structure of Blake's traditional yet revolutionary and transformative thought. For the perennial wisdom is itself revolutionary in an age that has lost its orientation to the abiding source. Obscure as he remained throughout his life, Blake yet saw himself as a national prophet, not as his first editor W.B. Yeats was later to be, an initiate of esoteric knowledge, and Blake never doubted that his work concerned his nation. Truth cannot be spoken so as to be understood and not be believed, he wrote. And in the descriptive catalogue of his one exhibition of paintings held in 1809, he addressed himself to the public, 
as against the professional critics of the day whose narrow blinking eyes have too long governed art in a dark corner. Sounds very contemporary. Only a few copies of that catalogue were sold, and yet time has been on Blake's side, and he has become a revered national and indeed international figure. And he writes, there cannot be more than two or three great painters or poets in any age or country, and these, in a corrupt state of society, are easily excluded, but not so easily obstructed. If art is the glory of a nation, if genius and inspiration are the great origin and bond of society, the distinction of my works, my, the distinction my works have obtained from those who best understand such things calls for my exhibition as the greatest of duties to my country. And the ignorant insults of individuals will not hinder me from doing my duty to my art. These are not the words of a mystical dreamer, a poet living in some private world. He assumed the prophetic role not as a private but as a public task. Blake's appeal to the public has been in the long heard, in the long run heard, and his name in England is a household name. His call to build Jerusalem, the holy city, in England's green and pleasant land on all lips virtually a national anthem. The Oxford English Dictionary describes a prophet as one who speaks for God. The role is a public one. The prophet speaks to his nation or to mankind as a whole on matters of universal concern. And his claim to divine inspiration is not questioned by those civilizations who recognize a supreme mind from which truths may be revealed to humankind, may inspire its recipients with cosmic knowledge. In the absence of any such belief, in the context of a civilization dedicated to a materialist ideology already well established in Blake's lifetime, the claim to prophecy can only be meaningless. Blake was unheeded in his, by his contemporaries or dismissed as a sort of madman. Yet his claim was clear, and the God for whom he speaks is the God within, the inner light of the Protestant mystical tradition, the universal spirit of the divine humanity, such was the term Blake used. At this time, the individual mind of multitudes of human egos is paramount. Psychologists, both Freudian and Jungian, make individuation their goal, whereas in traditional civilization, it was rather the purpose of prayer and meditation to open the individual to the universal mind. If genius and inspiration are the great origin and bond of society, and such was Blake's belief, shared by few in his own or perhaps any age, Shelley has called poets the unacknowledged legislators of the world. Such a belief in genius and inspiration imposes on poetry the role of prophecy, speaking for the universal mind on matters of this world, and prophetic truth will always prevail. 
Current fashion is for ego poetry, affirming each individual's narrow vision without regard or even to even the possibility of access to a greater mind. If Blake and Shelley believe in poets as the unacknowledged legislators and poetic genius as the bond of society, this is because the final and ultimate arbiter of truth is this God within, Blake calls the imagination, whose awakening in any individual or in humanity as a whole passes the final judgment on personal acts and national acts. This is the last judgment, which is the theme of a great unfinished painting on which Blake was engaged to the end of his life and on which he has written a long and illuminating commentary. Jesus, the imagination, appears as the judge. The work is in many details, based upon Michelangelo's great painting in the Sistine Chapel, but its mystical content differs in essentials from Michelangelo's conception of the judge appearing as a human person to acquit or condemn mortal men. Blake's last judgment is interiorized and has nothing to do with the end of time. It is a lost judgment because it is in its nature final and unanswerable when the highest arbiter within our own nature passes judgment on our finite mortal selves so highly prized in the modern world, our personalities. Thus, when the last judgment begins, its vision is seen by the imaginative eye of everyone according to the situation he holds. It is the judgment of truth and reality on every kind of error and self-deception. <coughs> in an early work entitled All Religions Are One, 1788, Blake makes it clear that he sees the poetic genius as nothing less than the prophetic gift. And I quote, the religions of all nations are derived from each nation's different reception of the poetic genius, which is everywhere called the spirit of prophecy. The Jewish and Christian testaments are an original derivation from the poetic genius. This is necessary from the confined nature of bodily sensation. As all men are alike, though infinitely various, so all religions, as all similars, have one source. The true man is the source, he being the poetic genius. Who then are we, and who this true man, who is called the poetic genius and the spirit of prophecy? Blake's true man is not the bodily man, nor the empirical ego, but the God within, whom he calls the imagination, and Blake being a Christian, Jesus the imagination, and the divine humanity. It is the divine humanity present in all that is the source of truth and the judge before whom all must stand. And that, of course, is the self of the, of the Upanishads, of the, of the Hindu uh, religious tradition.
In affirming that all religions are one, Blake is carrying his belief in the divine humanity, who is the true self in all, to its ultimate conclusion. In affirming that Jesus is God, he is by no means speaking as a Christian fundamentalist, for he declares that antiquity taught the religion of Jesus, which religion was the universal truth which Jesus had taught, and by no means to be equated with the exoteric teachings of the church or churches. In his bold restatement of the Christian teaching, Blake had the authority of the 18th century Swedish visionary Emanuel Swedenborg, from whom indeed Blake adopted the term the divine humanity, which he has made so much his own that few of his readers are aware that in this and much besides, Blake is following the teachings of Swedenborg. Indeed, Swedenborg's vision of the divine humanity, whom he describes as the grand man of the heavens, that is, of the inner worlds, is of great splendor, being the many in one and one in many of all humankind, who, from a distance, appears as one man, but from near at hand, so Swedenborg puts it, is seen to be made up of the innumerable multitudes of eternity. This grand man, Blake, Swedenborg also, identifies with Jesus, the imagination, the poetic or prophetic genius. But Swedenborg says that to many who have no knowledge of Jesus, he is recognized by other names as the Lord. This universal Christ is the regenerative divine presence in all, by whose virtue each and every individual has access to the divine presence. But, you may say, how can this innate divinity be equated with the poetic genius, or the poetic genius equated with the prophetic gift, which imparted the law to Moses, the Quran to the prophet Muhammad, his teachings to the Lord Buddha? All sacred traditions recognize a number of levels through which the divine life flows into the created world. And in such societies it is recognized that poets may be inspired from higher or lower regions of the mental worlds. Blake conceded that art, not of a prophetic character, was seldom without some vision, but he is insistent throughout his writings that one thing alone makes a poet imagination, the divine vision. There are many degrees between the great prophetic writings that have inspired whole civilizations and the glimpses and flashes that come to us all, however rarely. But the reality discerned in such glimpses is the same reality as is more fully set forth in the great revelatory visions and has nothing in common with the secular works which are self-expression of the ego and its various degrees of alienation from this vision of a greater reality. Indeed, it is because the one truth is written in us all that we respond to the sacred writings of all religious traditions and also to the great poets, Shakespeare, Dante or Rumi or the great epics of India or of all nations. 
It is a modern misapprehension that poets, musicians, architects, or indeed scientists and mathematicians are the originators of their works, that poets invent their poems or musicians their music. Rather, in moments of inspiration, they perceive the realities their works embody. It is recorded that Dante perceived in such a moment the entire structure of his divine comedy, which he thereafter wrote over a period of years. In the same way, Mozart received his musical inspiration as holes, which he thereafter wrote out in detail. Those who ask how Shakespeare could have known so much about all kinds and classes of people overlook the nature of inspiration. It is said that Shakespeare never blotted a line but wrote at great speed and without reflection, which suggests that, like Dante and Mozart, he had, when he wrote, access to that inspiration which comes not from individual memory but from universal mind. Spirit, according to St. Paul, Corinthians 2, searcheth all things. Blake himself claimed that his prophetic poems were often given to him from immediate dictation, 12 or sometimes 20 or 30 lines at a time, without premeditation and even against my will. The time it has taken in writing was thus rendered non-existent, and an immense poem exists, which seems to be the labor of a long life, all produced without labor or study. Those who have experience of imaginative thought will have no difficulty in believing Blake when, in more eloquent and figurative language, he writes, in my brain are studies and chambers filled with books and pictures of old, which I wrote and painted in ages of eternity before my mortal life. And these works are the delight and study of archangels. This surely is what Plato means by an amnesis, that all knowledge is remembering what we already and forever know. Blake was surely describing the access to the collective or universal mind of which the individual is, in Blake's words, but a form and organ, the agent, the agent and recipient. It is true that few works issue from this high source, but it is these which have their origin in that deep knowledge that speak wisdom to all times and places by virtue of the universal nature of the divine truth and divine beauty which all share and recognize, in which all participate. Poetry and the other arts are, therefore, when they so originate, communications of the deepest wisdom of which the mind of the empirical ego is incapable. It is characteristic of Blake that he spoke with a down-to-earth simplicity. He writes in Milton, There is a moment in each day that Satan cannot find. Satan is the mind of the ego, Satan's selfhood. There is a moment in each day that Satan cannot find, nor can his watch fiends find it. But the industrious find this moment, and it multiply. And when it once is found, it renovates every moment of the day, if rightly placed. 
This is the moment of inspiration, and at the end of a passage building up a great edifice of the wondrous buildings of time through the 6,000 years of the world's history, Blake concludes, every time less than the pulsation of an artery is equal in its period and value to 6,000 years. For in this period, the poet's work is done, and all the great events of time stand forth and are conceived in such a period, within a moment, the pulsation of the artery. This knowledge belongs not to history, to time, to experience, but to the cosmos. Nor is it only poets and musicians who are thus inspired, but scientists, mathematicians, all imaginative thinkers. Dr. Kapila Vatsyayan, who spoke to the Institute of Architecture students on November, in November 1993, told me afterwards that in her writings on the mathematical structure of the Hindu temple, temples were not at all her own invention. One day I just saw it, she said. These forms, be they temples or poems or any other structures within the cosmic whole, exist in their own right within inexhaustible reality. We do not invent but perceive them. It is because the one reality is written also in us that we respond to such works, which serve in platonic terms to remind us, as we do to the holy scriptures of whatever religion, or indeed to the deep insights of such poets as Shakespeare and Dante and Rumi, or to the Mahabharata. And it is surely only in the modern West that poetry and the sacred have become separated and the very idea of secular art has made its appearance, art without inspiration. Blake, so far as I know, is alone in his country, in his century, in declaring that the inspiration of the poet and prophet are one and the same, and the source of that inspiration, the divine human, innate in all. In fact, the separation of the divine and the human is an article of Christian faith from which only a few mystics have deviated, like Eckhart, whose works were banned by the papacy for declaring the divine principle to be within. Sufi mystics have been executed for saying as much, although in India the words tat tvam asi, that art thou, is a fundamental principle of Hindu sacred writings. But Blake is a prophet of the modern world who have nothing to fear but neglect and incomprehension. It may well seem strange, indeed unacceptable, to the religious, thus to identify the prophetic with the poetic gift, to affirm that the great religions of the world are each nation's different reception of the poetic genius, that the human imagination is the source alike of poetry and prophecy. What is a church and what is a theater, he asks? Are they two and not one? Surely this is to place the works of Shakespeare among the sacred books. 
The Protestant Reformation rested on the dawning realization that the inner light and not the church is the ultimate authority. But Blake carried this realization to its logical conclusion, so far as I know, unprecedented in the modern West, though what he affirmed would have caused no surprise to those Oriental thinkers for whom the universal and individual self are the same. In the mystical philosophy of Plotinus and the Neoplatonists, besides certain Gnostic Christians condemned by the church, a comparable understanding is to be found. In the Indian subcontinent, religion and art have been inseparably united until modern Western secular ideas invaded that ancient unity of culture. There is a world of difference between religious art in the modern West, which since the Renaissance has often taken the form of mere narrative illustrations of religious stories and personages, and sacred art in the true sense of art inspired by a vision of the numinous in whatever mode. In the whole phenomenon of the sacred icons of the Orthodox Christian tradition, or indeed in the Gothic cathedrals established on sacred principles of geometry and number, religious art is true sacred art also. But in the centuries following the Renaissance, the arts have moved ever further from any idea that a vision of the sacred is a necessary ground for any work of art. And yet, Blake wrote, one thing alone makes a poet imagination, the divine vision. Such a definition gives to the arts an essential function as the language in which that divine vision is communicated from the inner to the outer world, where the arts so inspired in turn remind us of that imaginative knowledge innate in all, our shared inheritance, accessible, Plato taught by recollection and amnesis, unforgetting. Blake continually affirms the sacred function of the arts in this sense, but in so doing he is by no means making a religion of art in the sense of those artists of the late 19th century who proclaimed the value of art for art's sake. Quite the contrary, it is by virtue of their function as the language of vision of sacred things that the arts have value. Poetry, painting, and music the three powers in man of conversing which with paradise, which the flood did not sweep away. The flood, symbolically understood as the sea of time and space, which submerges the higher consciousness of humankind, the omniscient God within, enthroned in every human soul. Around the throne, heaven is opened, and the nature of eternal things displayed, all springing from the divine humanity, all beams from him, as he himself has said, all dwells in him. The person on the throne, Blake names Jesus the imagination. In other sacred traditions, there are other names for the same reality.
Such a view of art is not possible in terms of a materialist civilization, for it presumes the recognition that within reality and within man there are other levels than that which forms the sole basis of our materialist Western civilization, whose mentality seems constitution un constitutionally unable to grasp the possibility that the measurable material world is not the ground and whole of reality. For the Oriental religions, it is equally self-evident that the perceiving mind and not the object perceived is a more fundamental principle. The innate assurance of the materialist mentality is illustrated by the story of Dr. Johnson, thinking he had answered the arguments of the immaterialist philosopher Barclay when he kicked a stone, saying, thus I refute him. There are many to this day who would still see this act of common sense as a valid refutation. But to modern physics, stones are no longer as solid as they were in the 18th and 19th centuries. In the same way, many Westerners engaged in the study of artificial brains are unable to grasp the difference between the brain, a physical organ, or a machine simulating the brain, and consciousness itself, a difference not in degree but in kind between the measure and the immeasurable. W.B. Yeats, who's Blake's first editor and greatest disciple, wrote that the mischief began at the end of the 17th century when man became passive before a mechanized nature. That lasted to our own day, with the exception of a brief period when imprisoned man beat on the door. Blake was, of course, the great mind who refused to allow imagination to be passive before um, the mechanized nature of Newton and Locke. He called himself, indeed, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, using the words of the gospel describing John the Baptist. When he proclaimed his prophetic message of the primacy of the imagination, the true fa faculty of knowledge must be the faculty which experiences this faculty I treat of. These words would cause little surprise east of Suez, on the Indian subcontinent, or in the Buddhist world. But one sees little evidence that they are better understood in the West than in Blake's lifetime, unless perhaps by the most advanced physicists themselves. But I am not qualified to digress into a discussion of scientific theory. To return to Blake then, his contribution to the Western mystical tradition is radical and twofold. One, religions are declared to originate through the human imagination, which receives the wisdom of higher worlds. Two, poetry and the other arts are placed in the same order of imaginative vision as are religious revelations. The difference is not of kind, but of degree, and both alike are visions of truth and reality. The visions of the imagination are not imaginary in the common sense of the word, fictitious and unreal, and the great Ismaeli scholar Henri Corbin has coined the word imaginal to indicate this difference. The imaginal is an interworld through which meanings and values are embodied in forms communicable in this world. 
Because Blake equated Jesus with the imagination, he declares in the marriage of heaven and hell that Jesus and his apostles and disciples were all artists, not because they practiced some art or craft, but because they acted from inspiration at all times. I tell you, no virtue can exist without breaking these ten commandments. Jesus was all virtue and acted from impulse, not from rules. Thus, while other religions, and indeed the Christian Church also, teach various methods of prayer and meditation as a means of conversing with paradise, Blake preferred the practice of the arts as a form of what elsewhere would be called yoga. He speaks, as always, boldly, simply, and unambiguously. A poet, a painter, a musician, an architect, the man or woman who is not one of these is not a Christian. You must leave fathers and mothers and houses and lands if they are in the way of art. Prayer is the study of art. Praise is the practice of art, fasting, etc., all relate to art. The outward ceremony is Antichrist. The eternal body of man is the imagination that is God himself, the divine body, Jesus. We are his members. It manifests itself in his works of art. In eternity, all is vision. In the same work on the angel of the divine presence, illustrating a drawing of the Laocoon, he further declares, Art degraded, imagination denied, war governed the nations. Art is degraded in a world which denies the sacred source and sacred function of the arts. Be these the fine arts or the simplest crafts of cooking, carpentry, all the making and doing of human hands. And this is inevitable in a world for which reality is equated with the material order, and that order seen not as a living, but as a, a living, but uh, as a mechanistic world. We have seen the decline of the arts in the modern West and Westernized world from, to take only English poetry as an example, the total spiritual context of Milton to the personal devotion of the metaphysical poets Vaughan and Traherne to the Augustan poets, Dryden and Pope for whom reason was supreme, to the descriptive Victorians, and finally to Marxist social realism. And in our own worlds, the camera eye, a mechanism, not a perceiving being, they don't even have the idealism of Marxism. It is just a mechanical process. The camera is the typical uh, perceiving mind of our age. And there is little poetry in modern poetry, thus denuded of values and meanings, which are no part of passivity before a mechanized nature. And yet we see a counter-movement among the younger generation who speak of the new age, and Blake would surely have been glad to see so many of the sons and daughters of Albion seeking to rediscover what has been lost, their own humanity. 
It was Blake himself who first used the phrase the new age, and in his preface to, to Milton, which I've already mentioned, he wrote, rouse up, O young men of the new age, and demolish these new men, to re and admonishes these new men to reject those who depress mental and prolong corporeal war. And he continues by summoning painters, sculptors, and architects to be true to our own imagination, those worlds of eternity. And there follows the poem the whole English nation knows as Jerusalem, summoning the people to build Jerusalem, the holy city, in England's green and pleasant land. The passage ends with a quotation from the book of Numbers, would to God that all the Lord's people were prophets. Such was the program Blake set his nation. Blake made many illustrations of religious themes from the Bible and from the New Testament, besides poems of Dante, Milton, Greek mythology, and the visionary world of Swedenborg. But for him, everything that lives is holy, and his vision of the sacred is summed up in those four familiar lines, to see a world in a grain of sand, and a heaven in a wild flower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand, and eternity in an hour. Perhaps Blake's greatest single work is his 22 engravings illustrating the Book of Job, made late in his life, in the year 1825. You are probably familiar with these small but inexhaustibly rich works, and you will remember how they conduct Job, that good man, from the prosperity of his first state through the progressive devastation of his world and his own reduction to near despair, to the vision of God, which restores to him more than he had lost in a deeper understanding of the divine nature. In the first plate, we see Job and his wife, his sons and daughters, his sheep and lands as far as the eye can see, seated under the great tree of life, studying the scriptures, all immobile like a Victorian family portrait taken on the Sabbath day when man is enjoined to do no manner of work. Behind this pious group on the spreading branches of the tree of life hang musical instruments, unnoticed and unused, under the engraving, the words are written, the letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. Job's religion is clearly strict obedience to the letter. The last plate depicts Job after his bitter ordeal and final enlightenment, his sons and daughters about him, all playing instruments or singing in chorus, practicing what Blake regarded as the true religion of the imagination, the God within addressing at the con concluding chapter of his last great prophetic book, Jerusalem, to know the Christians, Blake wrote, I know of no other Christianity and of no other gospel than the liberty, both of body and mind, to exercise the divine arts of the imagination. Imagination, the real and eternal world, of which this vegetable universe is but a faint shadow, and in which we shall all live in our eternal or imaginative bodies, when these vegetable mortal bodies are no more. The apostles knew of no other gospel. What were all their spiritual gifts? What is the divine spirit? 
Is the Holy Ghost any other than an intellectual fountain? What is the harvest of the gospel in its labors? What is that talent which it is a curse to hide? Worshipped in spirit and in truth, and are not the gifts of the spirit everything to man? O ye religious, discountenance every one among you who shall pretend to despise art and science. I call upon you in the name of Jesus. What is the life of man but art and science? Is it meat and drink? Is not the body more, is not the body more than raiment? What is mortality but the things relating to the body which dies? What is immortality but the things relating to the spirit which lives eternally? What is the joy of heaven but improvement in the things of the spirit? What are the pains of hell but ignorance, bodily lust, idleness, and devastation of the things of the spirit? Answer this to yourself, yourselves and expel from among you those who pretend to despise the labors of art and science, which alone are the labors of the gospel. Thank you. Sound. I think they will. They'll, they'll come too presently. I, mean. I hope so. The question. Yes. How do you bring it about? How do you make it a daily reality? We seem to be so far removed from this condition. Well, we have our moments. I would say I've had my moments. You're very lucky. I was thinking in more general terms. More general terms? With more people, you know, make it more common, more uh, usual occurrence. Make it something people look forward to, people can expect, people can, uh, becomes part and parcel of your daily life. Be well, aware. that was what Blake was saying, really, wasn't it? He was admonishing people not to put religion in a separate compartment, but to make it a parcel of their daily life and to live in that way. And I think we all, as I say, have our moments. But, you know, it's expecting a great deal to have the supreme vision at every moment of the day. <laughs> Can I ask a question? Um, what what, um, what uh, place would you put uh, Coleridge in? What place would you put Coleridge in? Very interesting question. He was a wonderful poet. And I've just read a very interesting and important essay on Coleridge by Ted Hughes in his new book called Winter Pollen. Uh, Coleridge certainly had 
his moments of inspiration of, of the three great poems, The Ancient Mare and the Kubla Khan and Christabel. And Ted Hughes is arguing, and I think he's absolutely right, Coleridge had his chance, he had his moment, but what with one thing and another, conventional religion defeated him, and he never thereafter wrote poems of the same beauty as these three inspired poems. He wrote the wonderful Ode to Dejection, which is in a way a, a lament for the loss of vision. But I think, but what Ted Hughes thinks uh, ruined Coleridge, as it did Wordsworth, was that they they uh, turned away from the uh, the inspiration to uh, conventional Christianity. And is anything duller ever written than Wordsworth's ecclesiastical sonnets and Coleridge's aid to reflection? It's all very well, but it doesn't stand in the same universe as Kubla Khan. Uh, that's what I think of Coleridge. I love Coleridge. I think he was one of the greatest minds that England ever had. Poetic minds, imaginative minds, and he talked about imagination and fancy, and and wrote wonderfully about it. But he he lost it. He lost out, and as Wordsworth also did, I think. Could you speak up a bit? Yes, I can't hear at all. Can you hear? Not quite. You need to hear. We're in a Unitarian chapel now, interestingly, aren't we? And Coleridge in his youth was a Unitarian minister. Can I just say that people are becoming interested in Coleridge and he was a Unitarian minister? Oh, yes. Sorry. You still have to speak a little louder. Yes, I'm sorry. We're in a Unitarian chapel now, and Coleridge. When he was in his 20s, was a Unitarian minister. He never became one. Oh, he, he was going to. Well, he did preach uh, as a yes. Unitarian. And how, what, what link would you place uh, with Unitarianism and his return to Trinitarianism? I'm not a theologian. I don't know quite what the Unitarians believed, but it was... Um, I'm sorry, I can't answer that because I don't really know the teaching of the Unitarians. I think myself. that what Ted Hughes is saying really is that it's Christianity that did him in, the, yes. the, the church. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is, I'm afraid, I think you see the separation that Christianity made right from the start uh, between uh, the human and the divine that man was a creation of God and not a, not a, not a manifestation of God. You see, in, in the, for all the mystics of all religions and for the, uh, for the Vedantic teaching, uh, the self within man is the same as the divine self. There is no difference. Tatvam asi, that thou art. And this is the deepest secret of, of the religious understanding of the Indian subcontinent. But Christianity, and I, I'm not sure about Judaism, separates. I think Judaism is, is different. Warren could tell you more about the tree of Kabbalah, which it seems to have it all. 
But uh, it, Christianity definitely sees the universe as a creation of God and not as a manifestation of God, and man as a creation of God, and what is more, a fallen being. And one hears much more about original sin in Christianity than one does about the innate divine self. And Protestantism began to have this beginning to understand this, and that's what the Reformation was all about. And uh, the world was growing up at that time, and Blake grew up another stage, and Burma, the mystical writer, the German mystic on whom he based himself. And now I think that the modern West has just about reached the threshold of understanding this worldwide mystical tradition of the perennial philosophy. Uh, that is my own way of seeing it. I don't know if that answers your question at all. But I don't know how Unitarianism would see this thing of the, the separation between the divine and the human, but that is the crux of it, I think. Yeah, I just want to ask you, do you think um, when we begin to um, be intellectual and become specific, then do we ne then lose our creativity and spontaneity? The personality isn't creative. So that's, that's where the inspiration always comes from. Well, it comes from the divine source within. The personality is the uh, sort of daily, the daily ego that uh, is conditioned by our daily happenings. It's, it's the external person. And, and what Blake called Satan, the selfhood. People are very keen on the personality nowadays, and you get nothing else on the media. It's all personality and no inspiration. And that is, the, that is the character of this age. We've gone about as far as we can, and a new generation, call it the new age if you like, uh, as a French writer I was reading just uh, today, Le Vin Tournay, the wind has changed. The wind has changed. We've had enough of this personality, and people are beginning to look again, look within for something else. So Well, I don't believe that, and the, the, all this talk of creativity, I, I reach for my, the safety catch of my revolver, as someone <laughs> <laughs> famously said, uh, because I think people haven't really gone deeply enough to this thing of creativity. Creativity is anyone, right, sitting down with a pencil and a, uh, or a crayon or something and, and expressing themselves or expressing their neuroses. It may be therapeutic. I don't deny it. But it's not creativity. <laughs> creativity comes from inspiration. It comes from the divine vision. It comes from something deeper. But there are, as Blake says, degrees. I don't think anyone perhaps sits down to write a poem seriously without having had some wonderful flash, something, something has flashed in the mind uh, that, and that flash comes from uh, this source which Blake calls the imagination. Coleridge also called it the imagination. Mm, I'm just trying to, I suppose, I'm trying to pin down where that little spark comes from. You said it's the imagination, but how is that imagination sparked? You don't just suddenly, I don't know, wake up and jump out of bed and think, oh yes, you know, stuck in the wheel or... Well, it varies, but we, we do in our human life have deep experiences at times. 
uh, and at other times we don't. We, we sort of freewheel along on a very external level. Yeats defines it as genius is a crisis that unites at certain moments the sleeping and the waking mind. It is going deeper into the... And, and that doesn't mean it comes in dreams because, you know, you can look at a flower or a tree or a cloud or a human face and that can be revelatory. It depends on the depth through which it comes. And it's a, it's a ladder, it's not, it's not A or B, it's, it's a scale in which the light comes filtering down uh, from a pure source to higher or lower degrees of inspiration. And even the, the most uh, lamentable example of creativity I, I think there is something, something gets down from that light. But one has to realize that there is a scale, there is a ladder, uh, and works of genius come from higher or lower uh, rungs of that ladder. Um, but as I say, Warren can tell you more about the tree and the, and the descending of the Holy Spirit through the ten. <laughs> well, anyway, that, that, that is what I'm saying, and that is what Blake is saying, that, that, that it's a scale, you see. And Well, but you see, Blake is saying that the divine is within us all. We all have access. We all have access to the divine. We don't expect enough of ourselves. We underrate ourselves. We are all divine beings. We all have this divine in us, but we don't all live live according to that vision. That is that is up to us. Some people have denied it altogether. We don't expect nearly enough of ourselves, and the media don't help at all. You've been quite scathing about religion so far. Do you see a place for religion apart from being a kind of museum of prophetic insights? I find that an awfully difficult one to answer because I think that um, if there is a unity of culture, it can only be through shared symbols, shared myths, shared sacred stories. If we're all doing our own thing, we don't get as far. Uh, Yeats says unity of being is only possible within unity of culture. And, and uh, it is very uh, doubtful whether a number of individuals all uh, looking for the inner light uh, can uh, carry a civilization that brings on a whole people. But I think that the trouble is that the pre at the present time, we many of us feel that the churches are talking about this and that, but not the essential thing. I see uh, you behind are, are wanting to say something about that, uh, Mr. Sheehan. It's a, it's a question for you, Kathleen. Do you think the absence of an organized group, such as the Sufis inside the Muslim tradition, the absence of such a group in the Christian tradition, have allowed the Christian tradition to become as barren and uninspiring as it is? That there isn't a a select group, but then it devoted to the sacrum, upholding the sacrum, and so they have 
allowed the sector to be removed and removed from common everyday experience because there isn't anything witness to it. You have the individual, Mother Teresa's and the churches. All Christian churches can find to their individual so-called living saints. But yet because there is this organized absence that the Soviets are in being manifestation of, that this has allowed the sector to become removed and absent from the Western Christian tradition and therefore more isolated and more enriched. Uh, if I've heard you right, you may well be right about that, that it is because the, the, the absence of, of initiates. You see in, in, uh, in Oriental religions, you learn from a master. Uh, you don't learn just from a, from, a, from a book. And in India, it is said, the Hindus would say it, I'm not sure about Islam, but that you must learn it must be transmitted from uh, teacher to, to, to disciple. But that again is, is done within a unity of culture which shares certain uh, teachings and certain myth myths and certain sacred stories. And, and we seem to have lost that totally in the West. And the, the, the Catholic Church, as, as you know it better than I in Ireland, um, it, it keeps something but there too, there's a, an attr uh, uh, attrition, a wearing away, a, a diminishment of, of what should be there. Uh, I, I think that you have some views about this tradition being nevertheless kept in Ireland in certain Celtic traditions within the church. Well, uh, what I found surprising, and it's so all your lecture when you speak about the corporate personality, uh, the person that has um, furthest public defining a post-Burian view of personality, Dr. Adrian Masto, at his ideal person, theoretically admitted, would be abnormal and supernatural. And he said, in another age, such a person, while they've always existed, in another age, they would have been described as a one who walked with God. And it's rather surprising that he should use this term because the, the Gaelic term for it in Ireland and Scotland would be KDA and with KDA the personality he defined as that of an idealized, evolved, supernatural being in touch with God consciousness was that of the monastic reform movement of the 8th and 10th centuries, the KDA movement that had its story in Ireland. I didn't altogether hear that. <coughs> that he said something with the characteristics of what you described. Mm -hmm. and for example, Ireland and Scotland and would be regarded as a man who walked with God, a person who walks with God. Yes. Is that the gist of what you said? Yes. By Dr. Edward Maslow's definition of the term. According to Maslow, the psychologist. I think that, that it's been a great loss in, in the secular West that, that that whole conception of the man who walks with God has been lost. And I, uh, for example, uh, in India there are still holy men and somehow the stories of many of them, they would have been dealt with by the social services and had uh, drugs, shock treatment, uh, counseling, God knows what would have happened to to uh, 
the great Indian saint Ramana Maharshi, if he'd been picked up by the police sitting in a loincloth by, by the roadside in England, having run away from his family at the age of 16, what would have happened to him? Of course, he'd have been taken up by the, uh, by the police and given a cup of tea and handed over to the, to the uh, social welfare and uh, dealt with accordingly. He couldn't have made it. But because India still has that sense of holy men, and it is a recognized uh, category of human being. People fed him, they protected him, they, and, and gradually they became his disciples, and so it works. So in a way, it has to be the whole society. It isn't enough to have the, the odd visionary. You have to have a society also that, that, that supports it. And we've lost both. We, we're in a very bad way. I hope you're in a better way in Ireland. <laughs> yes. No, you. Jocelyn, yes. Uh, can I go back to the arts for a moment? Yes. Uh, one, one reading of what you said uh, suggests that each one of us should be our own poet or painter or, um, or composer. But could you say something about those of us who don't feel that we have a creative inspiration, but who feel that our path to the reality you're talking about is through playing other people's music, reading other people's poems, and looking at other people's paintings of a standard that we never pretend to reach ourselves. Oh, yes, I think so. What does Blake say? Prayer is the study of art. Praise is, is the practice of art. He, he sees them both, yes, the study of art, the practice of art. And certainly performing music would be, would be an art. And, and, uh, and indeed, the whole reading, the whole purpose of, of the painter painting a picture, the musician composing a work, is to communicate that vision to others to remind uh, to rem it, it makes us remember when we hear music by one of the great musicians or read a play by Shakespeare it's not like reading a difficult modern work and thinking well I have to look up a lot of notes to understand that one in under immediately understands and we feel how did Shakespeare know that and we feel how did he know I know and and with music also, it's it it's so familiar. Uh, the the it's this communication because it is ourselves that in us which it came from in him or or her I suppose. It, it it's the same thing. It's the the spirit speaking to the spirit, the heart speaking to the heart. Uh, it, whereas um, difficult works of uh, modern poetry, uh, we have to read it all up or we don't understand it. But what comes from the spirit speaks to the spirit. So it's not separate, Jocelyn, surely. I'm, I don't think I'm answering that very well. Oh, you answered very well. Mm. Um, let, let me put uh, a subsidiary question in a nutshell. Do we do better to study first-rate works about than to struggle to create second-rate works. <laughs> <laughs> well, I often say in private that the best cure for creative writing is creative reading. <laughs> and, and we would often find out much more about ourselves by reading Shakespeare than by writing our, uh, our creative writing. But I think both are necessary. One mustn't be hard on, <laughs> on people. I think both are both, uh, are necessary. 
Consider your teacher or guru. Oh, okay. Blake! <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. Oh well, I've learned a great deal from all, all sorts of people, but I've I've devoted my life to my, to Blake's studies pretty much half my lifetime, and I've learned an enormous amount from him. And I would say that I didn't regard him as a subject about which I could. Uh, you know, so many academics they have a theory and they take some writer to illustrate their theory. But I, I've studied Blake in order to understand the truths which he has uh, taught and mediated. And in seeking to understand him, I've learned profoundly the things that I needed to learn. And I think so have many people at this time, because he did become very much, especially The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, became very much a sacred book for the, the young New Age people. They didn't read much beyond that, but it, it had this tremendous impact, you know. And much academic study, there isn't this relation, you know, at all. There isn't this... People learn about writers, they don't learn from them. And what Temenos is, is doing in our seminars we're learning from Dante, we're learning from Shakespeare, we're learning from Mallory, um, Plato, um, whatever it may be, not about them, you see. Whereas most universities nowadays, you, you, you're not supposed to learn from Plato, you're supposed to learn about him. And probably by, from someone who doesn't agree with him at all, <laughs> they know better. Yes. One more. One more. That's the yeah. last. Uh, I'm so sorry to be so late and ask this question. What can I'm very concerned about people whose background or influences have not perhaps allowed them to have a sense of newness, which I think all of us here are here because we have perhaps even tiny glimpses of it. But there are so many people. Whose world is so limited and it's the technology fault, it's just the way things are, and they don't have access to these glimpses and all these wonderful things. It may sound arrogant to say that who is one to judge the glimpses that other people have or may not have, but I'm worried about people who perhaps haven't had the influence in the background to have a glimpse. But that is what is so terrible about our civilization, that so many people are, are not given access in, in the schools and universities. 
the things that are taught very often not the things that human beings in their deepest reality really need to learn. And indeed, one has to unlearn an awful lot. It took me half a lifetime to, to unlearn what I learned at Cambridge, which was very impressive, you know. And uh, Kumaraswamy, you may have heard of him, the great aesthetician who was the uncle of my first publisher, Tambimoto. Kumaraswamy used to say, it takes four years to get a first-rate university education, but it takes 40 to get over it. <laughs> People can't, everybody, you know, you find your way to whatever there is. And after all, look at the, People create their own culture. They don't need to buy tickets for Covent Garden. Look at the blues, the, 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 the Negro people in America had in their hearts a deep need to express themselves, to express the, their deepest feelings in, in words and music, of, which is probably the best, best art America's produced, are the, the spirituals and the blues by the slaves who had nothing. You don't need to have, you don't need to be learned. <laughs> Well, most people have a feeling for flowers and birds and the sun and the stars. Yes. It's, it's in us. Yes. I think everybody has, everybody at some time, some place, they find it. Two things. One, Kathleen, thank you very much for a very informative evening.